Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. They don't teach rhetoric per se in America as much as they should, although there's more of it now. I think, if I may boast, I think because of me. I think I have taught other teachers. Other teachers have taught other teachers. Other teachers have taught students. I think there's more of appreciation for Elizabethan rhetoric than there ever was before. everybody and welcome to the fanatics lower decks that's star trek lower deck run i am claire kramer one of your hosts and i am here with my other amazing co-host mr david magadoff hi david oh hello claire what a lovely day it is to be talking wonderful paramount plus animated comedy shows with you it is certainly a lovely day, and this is episode six. I don't, I don't know what the official title is, but it should just be called Quirk's episode, or like we're happy yeah. to see Quirk. You know? Yeah. It was such a surprise to see him in there. What, what were your thoughts, David? Well, the greatest part is that it's Armin Shimmerman, who's our guest today, who <laughs> is playing Quark. So it wasn't just Quark, you know, the animated figure. It was Armin Shimmerman, the man, the myth, the legend himself, and he's going to talk to us today about his love of teaching Shakespeare, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, did it just put a big old smile on your face, Claire, when you heard him and saw him? Well, first of all, he, you know, everybody always says, especially in Los Angeles, oh, you haven't aged a day since such and such marquee project. You know, his obviously would be Deep Space Nine. His voice literally has not aged one day since then. <laughs> I mean, he's a well-established, renowned, not just actor, but teacher and, you know, thespian in general. And his voice is everything behind it <laughs> in this episode that you would want. And, you know, Quirk. It was so fun to see the animation of that character who, you know, we've known for decades. It it just, I, I just loved every single thing about this episode. You're gushing. You're gushing. Favorite part, David? I have so many, but go ahead. Uh, I got you, a bunch. Uh, I loved it. The, I loved it the very tip top when they're just circling in awe of the pylons. I just appreciated it in the intro. <laughs> <laughs> just the slow burn. I always love the slow burn moments of just the, uh, the USS Cerritos just sort of circling the pylons and just be in awe of them. That made me smile. I also, I think my line of the episode was, uh, which I hope you enjoy as well, Claire, um, when that guy was talking to uh, Ensign Tendi. I've never been to Orion. I'm from Cincinnati. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of good lines in this episode. One thing that has struck me now, you know, we've watched... We've we've been in this on this lower decks journey six episodes in, 
It is definitely not a children's show. I mean, no, there are so no. many double innuendos and things like thrown in there. And, you know, I, one in particular, I was like, I can't believe that made it on air uh, one term, which I will share offline. I don't want to even say it. <laughs> so just, bad. Hold, just write it down, Claire, and hold it up to the screen. Okay, uh, I will. I'll type it on my phone um, and hold it up. Yeah. <laughs> but it is definitely an adult show. And the yeah. more, it's one of those shows, like, I always say this about the movie Anchorman. Like, the more you watch it, the more you can appreciate the humor. The first time I saw Anchorman, I was like, yeah, it was okay. It was kind of good, but not one of the best of Will Ferrell's movies. But the more I've seen it, the more I'm like, that movie is freaking genius. And I kind of feel that way about Star Trek Lower Decks. Yeah, it's a brilliant show. Mike McMahon, uh, as you all know, we don't have to be the first to say it. We certainly are. Coke Zero, Mike McMahon. 175th. But yeah, he's he's amazing. But yeah, Armin was a pleasure. We loved having him on. Uh, he is, a, like I said, a true thespian. He's so kind. He was just so generous with his time. I, I loved, I loved, you'll probably hear it throughout the episode, how he was like, great, great question, Claire. Great question. Right, David. I know. I, just, I, I personally felt like scene. so, so such <laughs> affirmation. <laughs> Like you've been my dad. <laughs> I'll I'll take you as my dad. I'm fine with that. But yeah, he was he's a delight. Of course, you know him as Quark from Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, obviously, and mm-hmm. from this wonderful show, Bioshock, Ratchet and Clan Future, A Crack in Time, uh, The Grim Adventures of Billy and Man. The regular so much show he's done. Yeah. yeah, he is an absolute treat of a human being, and boy, he loves teaching Shakespeare. So I hope you guys all uh, get to hear his passion come through. Enjoy, forsooth. Armin, do you ever dream an iambic pentameter? Uh, no. Uh, I do dream in rhetoric, but I do not dream an iambic pentameter. In fact, I don't That's much good, care for iambic pentameter. Oh, I can't wait to get into that. How long did it take for you to start dreaming in rhetoric? 50 years. 50 years of uh, constantly reading Shakespeare, constantly reading about the period, constantly uh reading about what rhetoric is about. Oh, wow. So quite the commitment. Today, we're talking about Shakespeare and your love of teaching Shakespeare, which is exactly what this podcast is about, It finding those niche things. Right. Constantly reading this book. He's holding up Shakespeare's use of the arts of language. That is what he's holding in his hands. Yes, by Sister Miriam Joseph. What was your first exposure to Shakespeare? Were you very young? Were you in university? What was your first exposure to his work? Uh, my first exposure to his work was in, in high school where I was reading about him. But more importantly, I, I transferred schools. I went from New Jersey to California and uh, enrolled in Santa Monica High School where uh, my teacher, a man named Jellison, uh, Mr. Jellison uh, cast me as Claudius in the play Hamlet. Claudius is the king, of course. And I became fascinated with the language and with the characters. I then went on to UCLA, where I became an English major, and it was my forte was to study Shakespeare. I graduated with a degree in English uh, with specialization in Shakespeare. And ironically, if I may tell this story for your Star Trek fans, please. my primary Shakespeare teacher at UCLA was a man named David Rhodes. And David Rhodes is very important to Star Trek. I'll tell you why. David Rhodes uh, uh, periodically invited young, uh, young British actors to come to UCLA to help teach Shakespeare to his English students. 
and uh, he periodically brought people in. One of the times he brought people in, he brought in a young Patrick Stewart to uh, help in the classes. Um, ironically, one of the producers, one of Roddenberry's producers on Next Generation, saw one of those classes. Don't know why he was there, but he did. And he went back to Roddenberry and said, I think I found the captain. And that's mm. how uh, Patrick, in a way, there are many roads to that to final hiring, but that's one of the roads that uh, brought Patrick to Star Trek. Wow. That's a good story. That's solid. That's not nothing. Armin, how did you know you wanted to teach this? Before you answer that, a bigger, more important question. Where did you grow up in New Jersey? I am also from New Jersey. Oh, I grew up right in the middle of New Jersey, about 10 miles outside of Asbury Park, a little town called Lakewood, New Jersey, which is now a a rather uh, eccentric sort of place. And I won't go into that. But um, I I had a lovely, lovely, lovely childhood and was broken hearted when I left Lakewood to move to Santa Monica. However, I'm very, very grateful for that move to Santa Monica because it put me on the pathway to acting. I never would have been yes. an actor if I'd stayed in, in Lakewood. Not a big union in Lakewood. Yeah, I grew up in Monmouth County. Monmouth County. Uh, Tom's yep. River? So, uh, no, nah, I was in uh, Marlboro specifically. Marlboro. Red Bank, New Red Jersey Bank. was where... Right on I, the shore. That was where I'm, like my childhood haunt yeah. was. So, anyway. So, Red Bank, I went to Red Bank often to the, go to the beach... Uh, so, uh, yeah, Asbury Park, Red Bank, uh, Ocean City, they're all right there. Yes, that was our, uh, Shakespearean tangent. So now I'm going to take you back to where did you learn to love to teach it? Well, I originally didn't think much of being a teacher, uh, but when, um, things were tight in Los Angeles after I moved from New York, a friend of mine, Ellen Gear, who runs a Shakespeare festival in Los Angeles called the Theatricum Botanicum asked me if I wanted to teach. And I said, uh, Ellen, I, I, I've never taught. I, I don't know if I could be a very good teacher. This is probably back in 1982, maybe, perhaps then. And uh, because of Ellen, I started to teach at Theatricum uh, and found that it was a great passion. I loved watching actors realize what they didn't know about Shakespeare, about how to mm. make the language clear how to make the, the, uh, a lot of things clear. Um, and that eventually, from that beginning at the Theatricum, I, I expanded out and started teaching all over Los Angeles. I was asked, as I went away to do uh, theater around the country, oftentimes theaters would ask me to do a seminar about Shakespeare, and I love teaching that. It is a great passion of mine to see the light bulb go on uh, for actors when they realize what was perhaps difficult for them in the past is was now uh, clearer, uh, more accessible for them, and, uh, and, and, and they became better actors, better communicators at it. It is, it is uh, perhaps more than anything I do, it, it is the thing I love the most, besides my wife, um, that I adore doing, which is, which is teaching Shakespeare. When you were a student yourself and in Hamlet, how did you approach the language? Because often, as you've said, that's a barrier for many. Was it easily accessible to you from the beginning, or did you have no, your own like? No, no, moment? of course not. I was okay. a high school student. It, it was it was not accessible. It was very dense, and uh, God knows what my performance was like. But I have found, and I've worked in many Shakespeare festivals ar- across the country. Uh, I have found that many professional actors aren't much better than I was in high school. Uh, they may have more credits and other things, and they may have done a lot of Shakespeare. 
but, but they're not good communicators. And what I love doing is teaching actors to be better communicators, to make the language much more, much more understandable. Um, if I may, another example. Here's a line that everybody's heard a thousand times. What light through yonder window breaks? It is the east and Juliet is the sun. Now, if I sit down and ask a class, and I've been asking classes now for decades, what does that line mean? You've heard it a thousand times. What does it mean? And they sort of have a sense of what it is. They're not quite sure what it is. But when I start to talk to them about the principles of rhetoric, something called antithesis, about opposites, or about things that I call juxtapositions, two things being compared to each other, the crux to understanding that line is to understand that what Romeo sees is a light coming out of Juliet's bedroom, and it's a faint light. And so he compares it to the east. And for us, uh, for anyone who's knowledgeable, uh, for those of us who had to get up early for makeup, for Star Trek, for instance, we saw many a sunrise. And the light from the sunrise is very dim compared to the noonday sun. So if you understand that the east is sunrise and the sun is midday, then if an actor knows that, he can make the comparison in his what's called specifics and make the line that much clearer. So instead of saying, what light through yonder window breaks, it is the east and Juliet is the sun, rather say it this way, what light through yonder window breaks, it is the east and Juliet is the sun. So you, you hear the juxtaposition, you hear the change. That is what I teach actors. And just as I saw your heads bobbing up and down, so I see it in class when the actors go, oh, oh. And then all of a sudden, the line becomes clear. It may not be 100% clear, but it's much clearer than it was before. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I get into it at the end of the pod usually, like why, you know, do we, you know, why is it that you do what you do and why do you love it? But and you've kind of said it. Is it really just seeing someone's eyes light up because you get to share something in a way that they had not known something previously and now they do and they're better for it, happier for it, more enlightened for it. And that to you is literally like what you can sleep on your pillow at night with. David, you put it much better than I ever could. It is that light, that happiness, that, that yes, they got it. And what's more... It, you change someone. I've changed someone, and what's more, if I see them in performance, I'm not bored with their performance because they actually have techniques now to communicate to me and the rest of the audience, and I can enjoy that production that much more because there are actors in it who know what they're doing. Um, they teach this. They don't teach rhetoric per se in America as much as they should, although there's more of it now. I think, if I may boast, I think because of me. I, I think... 
I have taught other teachers. Other teachers have taught other teachers. Other teachers have taught students. I think there's more of appreciation for Elizabethan rhetoric than there ever was before. They teach this in England. And one of the bugaboos that I've been fighting all my life is the, is the um, stereotype that English actors are better at Shakespeare than American actors. And I can tell you that that's not true. I've seen a lot of bad English actors. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you develop your teaching approach? Gradually. Thank you, Claire. So I, it was gradual because I hadn't taught before. It wasn't my metier. And I, I had to learn step by step. How do I do this to break through the fog of, of ignorance uh, in my students? How do I? Were you kind of louder and stricter at the beginning or were you more like kind of in the corner? I'm always loud and I'm always sure. strict. I'm always very strict. <laughs> um, and and, and this, I've learned that the stricter I am, the better my students like it. Because they need to be led by the hand in order to break through the, the scar tissue of bad teachers. One of the things um, that, that is really important to a Shakespearean actor is to leave your, your emotions behind. There are times when you have to be very emotional, but most of the time for a Shakespearean performance to work, you must be less emotional and more cerebral. And the more cerebral you are, the easier it is for an audience to understand. Because unfortunately, when an actor is being very passionate on stage, it's great for the actor. He's having a wonderful time. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a, it's a sexual experience for the actor who's in the midst of a, an emotional crisis. The problem is the actor has, the audience hasn't the faintest idea what that person is saying. And they feel stupid. And that's what I'm trying to fight constantly. I'm trying to make the audience not feel stupid. Because when they feel stupid, they think they don't like Shakespeare. But if you, if you give the audience a performer, or if they're just reading it, if they know the principles of rhetoric, if they're just reading it, then all of a sudden they can appreciate it that much more. All right, I got a question for you. Because Claire and I are actors and have taken many a Shakespeare class. And I'm so sorry. Just probably from someone not, <laughs> not nearly as wonderful as you. And have you ever been in that classroom? I'm sure you have. So the answer is yes. So I'm just curious now, what do you do with it? Where there's always that one guy or that one girl who's just not getting it or doesn't care. Do you put all of your time and attention to there and the other 99% of the students are like rolling their heads around waiting for you to be done? Or are you like, you know what? They don't get it. I'm going to really stick and, and work with the people who are excited about this. Are you able to let that guy or girl go who's like just, just chewing gum in the, in the other side of the room? Those or are, is it just as you As you describe it, David, those are two different types of students. One is one who doesn't care and one who doesn't get it. I mean, the mm. one who doesn't get it may care but isn't getting it. With that person who cares but doesn't get it, I give them more time because mm -hmm. I want them to succeed. If it's someone who's joined this class, God knows for what reason, and, and they're bored to tears, yes, after I've realized there's no hope there, uh, I move on to other students. But okay, if good. they have a, good all an interest, if they really want to learn, then I will give them extra time. And yes, the, student, the other students may roll their eyes, um, but that's too bad. Uh, uh, they will learn from my spending time with the other person. 
Okay, I want to call back for a minute because you said something really interesting about cultivating the performance so that the audience feels knowledgeable and included. So when you have cultivated that performance with a certain actor and gotten them to a certain place and you're watching, do you watch the audience or do you watch the actor? Uh, That's a great question, Claire. Thank you. I invariably watch the actor. Uh, That's what an actor wants. He doesn't want you to look around. He wants you to be focused (laughs) on his or her performance. Um, So I give the actor my respect that I'm watching them. On occasion, if the actors are really bad, then I may look around at the audience because there's nothing to watch on stage and see, you know, what the response is. Usually it's boredom. If I if the audience, if the actor is not communicating and and the and the audience is beginning to think, I just don't understand this stuff, they get bored and they start to look around. And that breaks my heart because I'm I'm truly in love with Shakespeare and the period and, and I want people to be as excited about it as I am. After all, it, it is Part and parcel of how of my success as an actor, uh, almost invariably, all the major actors on Star Trek uh, have a classical background, and and for me, certainly, without Shakespeare, I would not be sitting here in front of you. Can can you turn it around between Act One and Act Two if it's not if the performances are not resonating or connecting and they're not actually following? the method that you've taught are you able like a good coach like ted lasso to just turn it around in between acts no that's that's against the law you should both should know that uh you cannot the director cannot uh uh, talk to an actor during performance that's against union uh, principles and bylaws so you can't do that and if the actor's not doing well that performance then you hope that the next performance you hope that rehearsal gave them enough of um foundation so that if they're having a bad night, it will be better the next night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no mound cannot. visits. What's that, David? No mound visits as a right. baseball Yeah, no, no metaphors. visits to the mound. Uh, you, and you can't do that. Uh, equity uh, says directors can't do that. So, Armin, you brought up Star Trek, and I think it's a great question. So not every actor is a teacher, but uh, you are an actor, and you are a teacher. Was it difficult or did you find ways because people were open to it potentially or did you just go no that's not my time i'm an actor here on set right now when you'd be seeing performances of your fellow actors on set you know in star trek would you ever want to say something or try to say something or did you keep your mouth closed (laughs) i kept my mouth closed david you get into a lot of trouble to talk to a peer about their performance that is a that's a huge no-no. I have worked with actors on Star Trek that I would love to have said something to, but um, that that is a taboo, and and I would never cross that. That is. Do up you to go home and at least talk to to the wife and just go like, "This was an interesting day." <laughs> yes, that okay. happened many times. Good. <laughs> you got to get it out somewhere. <laughs> uh, and even usually, with... she was asleep. However, when I came home, <laughs> they were long days. They were long. Fair days. enough. Well, she's a gr- you're a really good listener when you're sleeping. No talk back. So would you ever come home from a class, say, like you're, you know, you've just taught at USC, my alumni. Uh, would you come home from class and talk to your wife about it? Or do you journal about it? Or do you just sort of when class is done, you're done and it's good? Or does it kind of sit with you if all of a sudden like, you made someone's day and you made it a great revelation? I often talk to my wife because my class was done at about two o'clock in the afternoon. So there was lots of time to talk to her after the class was over. And yes, uh, if someone made a breakthrough, 
if someone didn't make a breakthrough, uh, I would go home and speak to my better half and, and say, it really worked today, or yeah, today wasn't much good. It, yes, uh, because I am passionate about it, and keeping it bottled in is not good. And, and I tell the students, too, when they do very well, uh, and I see they've had a breakthrough, I, I'm jumping up and down. That's it, that's it, that's it. And, uh, and if they're not, I'm going, you know, what the hell is wrong with you? Um, haven't I spoken this enough? Or, or I'll take to the class and say, can you all understand what I'm saying? Because this person can't. Can you tell him something? Maybe I'm putting it the wrong way. Maybe you can tell him or her what you understand that I'm not communicating to them. Is Romeo and Juliet, because you, you mentioned uh, the line from Romeo and Juliet, is that a entry point with your new students? Or what would you consider the entry point Shakespearean work? And what is the most difficult, like the ramp up that you have to really learn the method before you can tackle effectively? A good question, Claire. So uh, it's no secret that as Shakespeare pro progressed in his career, the, the, the lines and the structure of the lines uh, became more dense, harder. Mm -hmm. The connective tissue is more present in the earlier plays than it is in the later plays. So, Romeo and Juliet is a relatively early play. So that, uh, like Richard III, for instance, those are easy plays to approach because the language is, is easier. When you get to Winter's Tale, when you get to The Tempest, when you get to Pericles, that's difficult language, uh, especially Winter's Tale. That's difficult. So uh, I usually don't assign work from the later plays until the latter part of my class because you have to have the foundation to the, the technical things to approach that uh so you, that's my answer all right this is a good one what if you had to teach someone how to teach shakespeare like what's the one thing you would want that teacher to know well certainly i would want them to know the principles of rhetoric i, I don't i don't care tuppence about iambic pentameter which we got to get into in a second, by the way, but keep going. Sure, absolutely. But I would want them to study the fundamental principles of Elizabethan rhetoric. If you know those, then you can teach someone to be a better, and not just Shakespeare, to be a better classical actor. Because rhetoric was taught, uh, it's still taught, but it wasn't the, the forefront of teaching for, for people, not just actors, but for people up until about the beginning of the 20th century. For some reason, rhetoric was taken out of the curriculum uh, it, and wasn't the focus. But for everybody, up until the 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century, rhetoric was in the forefront of their studies. All right. Why, why do we hate iambic pentameter? I don't hate iambic pentameter. Why do you um, strongly dislike why it? Why do I dislike it? This is why I dislike <laughs> it. Because bad teachers stress iambic pentameter. Mm. And the truth of the matter is, uh, and there's been a lot of studies on this, that there's a huge proportion of, of Shakespeare's verse that is not in iambic pentameter. So if you try to force the verse to always be iambic pentameter, then you're going to lead people astray at times. And, and that's why I don't like iambic pentameter, because, because people are thinking, I've got to beat this out. Ba-bump, 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 ba-bump. Okay, now, there are times when it is valuable. Uh, if you need to know... Uh, the correct pronunciation of something, perhaps iambic pentameter will lead you in the right direction. But, but let me give you an example. Okay, 
I have a dear friend, an actress. Her name is Tess Harper, Academy Award nominee. She comes from the Ozarks. When we talk about coverage for her car, she'll say insurance. And I will say insurance. Jersey. Um, And Shakespeare's English, the way they pronounce the language, is closer to Tess's pronunciation of words than mine. But if we're looking at iambic pentameter, if I'm looking at it from the way I say it, the accent is on the shore, insurance. She will say insurance, and the accent is on the end. So unless you, you have OP, which is the original pronunciation, if you have that intrinsically in your head, then perhaps you can follow iambic pentameter better because you know where the accent fell. But again, a good proportion of Shakespeare's verse is not in iambic pentameter. And, and, and most teachers who stress that and only teach that are depriving the actors uh, or the English students, for that matter, uh, of the correct way to look at the language. I completely agree with that, because for me, I feel like, you know, when I was taught iambic pentameter and, you know, as an acting student, that it was being taught as almost like a musicality like a, you started speaking in that way and then you were on this like runaway train mm. and that's how everything was delivered and there it was emotionless for me so okay. i went through a phase where i just didn't even want to do any shakespeare because i wasn't connecting to any of the words it was just this cadence that was being pushed you know right. and, and so that the sound becomes more important than the meaning right than and, the meaning and, and, and then and meaning is what's really important <laughs> meaning yeah. is what's important so i i completely agree with your philosophy of like almost just throwing that out and just approaching it from the the juxtaposition makes a lot of sense when you said that i'm like oh that is that that's almost every line you can find that dynamic you know the light and the dark the the high and the low so anyway that's that's me armin saying you have taught me something now in this podcast it it is it it is that and and then the way he wrote also uh changed in the sense that in the early plays um the thoughts often ended at the end of the verse line Mm -hmm. but in the later plays there's a lot of run-on stuff and and take the the Scottish play, for instance, a lot of the ideas end in the middle of the line. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're following iambic pentameter, uh, you'll be cheated of those of those real endings. That are well, real. you're going to hit it down instead of open. That's right. You mentioned on Star Trek, many of the actors are classically trained. I went myself through NYU and the program there, but it's more, it's becoming more prominent for actors not to have that classical training and to just sort of enter into the business. And you can certainly be successful that way. Why is Shakespeare still relevant to a young student? Because of language, because, um, um, if you get some good writers in film and TV, they'll be using the same principles, whether they know it or not, mm. as of rhetoric. I mean, one of the great quotes of all time is John Kennedy. Think not what your country can do for you, but think what, but what you can do for your country. That's enormously rhetorical because of the repetition of words and the structure of things. And, and in films and in TV, certainly in Star Trek, a lot of science fiction, a lot of good TV, the writing is really essential. I mean, the producers are the writers. They are the forefront of, of the program. And, and if you can handle language correctly, it doesn't have to be Shakespeare, just language. If you can appreciate language and how to, to use it in, a, in an artistic way, then you are, you are not only a better actor, 
but you are a better communicator and your audience will appreciate as well. All right, Armin, if you had to teach something that wasn't Shakespeare, what would you teach? Or that's mm. it, one and only. Uh, yeah, <laughs> my one and Great. only. Great. Uh, that's I, an I answer. Guess I, I would, that's yeah, that's, um, I'm flummoxed, that's it. Beautiful. Yeah. Great. Then you've picked the right thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, because that's an, I like that question because it's, you know, there's something to be said for, you know, the topic is obviously teaching Shakespeare. And some people might say, that's my favorite thing to teach, but I just love teaching. And some people might, like you, like, I love Shakespeare, so teaching it's a beautiful thing. But yeah, I don't really love uh, teaching I have necessarily. In, in, yeah. I have been asked many times to help actors with non-Shakespearean auditions or non, non-theater non auditions. Yeah. And I turn them down. Mm. I go, that's, uh, it, it, I won't be good for you. You get yourself a better <laughs> teacher than that. Um, if it's a classical or a, or, a, or a theatrical piece, yes, I can do that. But, but if it's a TV audition or a film audition, there are much better teachers than I am for that. Great. What do you do with when two students are engaged in a scene and one is absolutely, you know, just being genuine and understanding and one is not? Do you switch scene partners or do you utilize the one that's actually understanding the technique to pull it out of the other? Well, one of the things I was taught, perhaps you were as well, that all life comes from the other actor. So to focus on one without the other uh, is an anathema. So you try to bring the, the uh, lesser of the two up a notch or two to give their scene partner, you know, more life. Uh, I, I tend to focus on the person that is, hasn't matriculated as, as quickly as the other. If that proves to be undoable, then yes, I think I will switch scene partners and say, well, that's great. You guys have completed this scene. Thank you very much. Now move on to something else. Get yourself another scene partner. Um, because you can you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Okay, last question before we get to our love letter. Do oh, I have you one have... more. One more oh, after great. this. <laughs> Second to last question before penultimate, we get... The penultimate question. <laughs> the penultimate, thank you. Yeah, the martini shop. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any students who you've kept in touch with now over the years, or they've kept in touch with you? Does that give you great joy, or do you just like mic drop out of a class and you don't need to see them anymore? I've been fortunate enough that all my USC students have, uh, have tried to keep in touch with me. I just had coffee with one the other day. Oh, great. Um, they, they are finding that what they learned in school was very valuable, but of course, life after school is a totally different animal. And, um, and they appreciate uh, what they learned, but they also want to know more. And in that case, because I am a fairly successful actor, um, they want to know about that as well. Putting Shakespeare aside, they want to know about agents, about managers, sure. about auditions, about all sorts of things. What do they do? So uh, they've been very good about keeping in touch with me, and I'm very happy to talk to them. I have a lot of students. I've been teaching for over 30 years. I have a lot of students, and I'm very gratified when many students will come up to me and say, you know, I, I had to give up on my acting career, but I became a teacher, and I teach a lot of what you taught me. Oh, cool. I mean, one of my favorite teachers, his name's Eric Trules. He's since uh, retired. He, t he taught. Uh, improv and solo performance at USC. And he was 
a hard ass, but in the best possible way. So I hope that's what I am as well. Yes, Armin, I you know I I can almost know that I would have been one of those students of yours asking you to coffee because I I really respond to people who are direct but loving, and that sounds like what you do. So that's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> well, my last question before the final love letter is, you know, how important is it in teaching your students to teach about the man himself behind the sonnets and plays? How much of that influences the work and how much is that obsolete? I don't think the man himself teaching about the man is very important. However, I do think knowing what all of mankind was thinking, feeling at that time is enormously important. Um, I truly believe that William Shakespeare wrote the play. And I can give you reasons at another time for why I believe that. But, but if somebody else did write the play, and we've, and we've recently found out through uh, scholarship that perhaps Marlowe had a lot to do with the Henry VI plays, it doesn't matter to me who wrote the plays. What matters to me is the communication of the ideas in the plays to a modern audience. I am interested in Shakespeare for my novels. I write novels about a young Shakespeare. But, but per se, and I'm fascinated to read about Shakespeare, but it rarely comes up in my teaching. Mm. All right, Armin, this has been an absolute delight. Uh, for those of you, like again, who just can't get enough Shakespeare, go to that Kim Rhodes episode we did. But today, Armin, you gave us another view of the great bard. Can you please regale us with a love letter? Yes. Dear Teaching Shakespeare, thank you for decades of satisfaction, of learning, of enjoyment, of solving puzzles, of watching actors get better at their craft. Um, it is an enjoyment, it is a pleasure, it is a blessing, and uh, Thank you. Thank the gods for putting me on this path because it has given me great, great, great joy. Uh, love, Armin Shimmerman. Beautiful. Fantastic. I'm coming to you, Armin, <laughs> next time <laughs> I have a Shakespearean audition, which I don't know when that will be. Well, if you do, give me a call. I'm happy to do it. My rates are very low, by the way. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Yeah, it's a funny one. What kind of teaching style you like? I, I mentioned it in the episode, but 
you know, I always tended to gravitate to teachers who were kind of a hard ass, but I always liked that personally because I felt like they, it was like they cared. Now, obviously, that can go a bad way and they can be mean or a bully or whatever, but I often found that the teachers that were hard asses in my experience they also had to have a quality about them that I knew they were being hard because they cared so much versus they were just mean, like there's mean teachers. I don't know how you felt. Does that, did you respond to teachers like that, Claire at NYU? Or were you like, don't even think about talking to me that way? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the interesting thing about NYU is you do two days at the university for your academics, and then you do three days out at a studio. So I didn't actually study acting at NYU. I studied acting at Lee Strasberg Theater Institute Mm. and had my academics at NYU. But in terms of teaching style, I mean, for both acting and academics, I I was always like a front row student. You know, I like to get there, take my notes, do my thing. So I resonated with a teacher that was articulate and a clear communicator more so than like, you know, a strong particular teaching style. And then at Strasbourg, all the all the teachers that I studied under there, which you studied music and Tai Chi and dance and also acting. And the acting classes were four hours long, three times a week. And those teachers were direct students under Lee Strasberg. So they were all a little bit older, um, had been teaching many, many decades. And only recently, since they've started to, you know, pass away or retire in their 70s and 80s have people who haven't directly studied under Strasberg begun to be allowed to teach at Lee Strasberg Theater Institute. So there was a very particular style that was taught there. Even though the teachers were very different in personality, the format was the same, which is, you know, what is considered method acting. Like so you- I don't know. What was what was your like training as an actor like? Oh my gosh. Uh I went to USC. I had a good time. I'd say, though, kind of in a funny, similar way to you, like you went to NYU, but you went, they they said, hey, go to Lee Strasberg. This is how we teach you guys how to act. You know, we kind of, <laughs> they export you to a, a studio, uh, which is under the NYU umbrella. Similarly, I did a, a semester abroad in London at BADA, the British American Drama Academy. And that really was just like the semester of all semesters where... I didn't even think I wanted to be an actor. And then I did the semester. And by the end of it, I was like, I think I'm going to try this thing <laughs> like to, as a profession. So who knew, you know, I, I, who knew, but that, that's what the experience was for me. And to circle back to what Armin said, just to put a cap on the feather here, he said, you know, a lot of people think naturally that British actors do Shakespeare the best, but it was really fun hearing from all of my British professors say to us, young American kiddos, uh, hey, you guys actually do Shakespeare in a way that we typically really enjoy more. So it's funny. So they were all like, no, I really, we really like how Americans do Shakespeare. Like, mm-hmm. like, and they weren't giving us BS. I could tell they really meant it. So that was kind of cool. So it's just a nice reminder that Shakespeare is for everyone and for every language and what a beautiful thing. So speaking of beautiful things, podcasts. 
the Fanatics podcast. Enjoy all these episodes, <laughs> friends. If you love the Shakespeare one, like you did today, go back to Kim Rhodes. Like I said, she gave a heartfelt, beautiful podcast about her love of just Shakespeare and just the language. So you will get you will get it from all angles, my friends. Uh, the uh, the love of the Bard, and you have a gift waiting for you to unwrap. Uh, feel free to like, subscribe, share all the things, and. We'll see you next Thursday for a brand new episode like we do. David is correct. Before I let you guys go, let me tell you a little bit about next week's episode. We have on Mr. Eugene Cordero from Star Trek Lower Decks. It's still going on, guys, on Paramount Plus Season 3. And you know him from Easter Sunday, Kong Skull Island, Little Demon, the new animated show, Tacoma FD, Loki, and of course, like I said, Star Trek Lower Decks. And he's going to talk about his favorite British reality TV shows. (laughs) Isn't that fun? So grab a cup of tea. And join us and line up in the queue. Just kidding. There's no queue. It's a free episode. Click click play. Enjoy. See you next Thursday. Thank you for listening to Fanatics, a Roddenberry podcast. For more episodes and info, head over to wearefanatics.com or tweet your Fanatics thoughts and stories at wearefanatics. Yes, that's we are F-A-N-A-D-D-I-C-T-S. Our show is hosted by Claire Kramer and me, David Magadoff. Produced by me, Claire Kramer, and Kelsey Goldberg. Executive producers Trevor Roth and Rod Roddenberry. Our sound engineer and editor is Elizabeth Joy Windham. And you can thank Stephen Mudd for our theme song. Catch us next Thursday for another Fanatics episode. I don't like I am Big Pentameter I don't like it very much at all Just give me some of that rhetoric.